Thanks for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod. If you're of the generous sort, you can support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you are able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. I'm Zach Crum, and joining me for today's episode is Dylan Keene. Dylan is a PhD student at the University of South Alabama, working at Dauphin Island Sea Lab. Dylan's research background is in fish movement and ecology, and he is currently researching southern flounder movement and the impacts of climate change on their populations. He also runs an angler-based tagging program in the state of Alabama. Welcome to the podcast, Dylan. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Pretty excited to talk about some of the cool stuff it seems like you're working on down there in Alabama. So to, to start us off, I'll ask a question I usually like to ask most people that come on the show, but I'm just kind of curious, what was it that first got you interested in fish? Um, so I kind of grew up fishing. My dad was from New York and uh, he really loved fishing. He would always go down and he would catch fluke up there, which is the summer flounder. And uh, he was a marine scientist himself. He was a marine chemist, really, really renowned marine chemist that was a professor here at the university um and i kind of actually got my undergraduate training in biomedical science i was trying to go to med school physical therapy school specifically um but in the meantime i had gotten a job through some connections i had at the sea lab in a fisheries lab as a tech and uh really just fell in love with it started working on all these different projects and then um right about the time i got into physical therapy school there was this flounder project coming up and i'd kind of set the whole thing up, been working on it, and I just couldn't bring myself to leave it. So I uh, got in touch with Dr. Sean Powers, who's my advisor, and we sat down and came up with a plan and ended up applying for a PhD program here, and that's how it all started for me. Huh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's cool when you see people that make that transition just because they realize that they love fish and <laughs> that's what they want to do. So that's pretty cool. How was that transition coming over no doubt in my mind, it was the right decision. I mean, I, I love the work that I do and the stuff that we get to do every day is just amazing. Much better than anything I probably would have been doing in the medical field. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So did you grow up uh, there in Alabama? I did. Yeah, I grew up in Mobile, Alabama, which is the major city that's about 30 miles north of Dolphin Island. Okay, gotcha. So you probably knew a lot about flounder and those fish before coming on to your to your PhD project, right? I did. Yeah. I mean, that was the fish my dad always wanted to fish for. And, you know, we kind of watched the populations decline with our own rod and reels throughout the time that I was growing up here. And every time we saw Dr. Powers when I was when I was younger, we'd always ask him, you know, what's going on with the flounder, this and that, you know, because we had the Deepwater Horizon oil spill that happened in 2010. A lot of people pointed the finger at that. You know, some of the research shows that, yeah, that definitely had major impact, but it's it's not the only thing that probably had an effect and, and caused the population to diminish in these fish because they're diminishing everywhere in the stock in the Atlantic and all across the northern Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. So what was it that excited you about, like, why flounder, I guess? Because they're good to eat or fun to catch or a little of both? They're, yeah, they're fun to catch. They're weird fish, you know. They're, they're very different, and uh, I didn't realize how different they were until I started researching them and getting into all the literature and stuff on them. But they're, they're just a really, really neat fish. People get excited about them, you know, and they are delicious. There's a big commercial fishery for them. All the restaurants want to have them on the menu and everything. So just, yeah really catching them is a blast that's yeah. uh, that's what i grew up 
waiting for that thump. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I grew up doing a lot of inshore saltwater fishing for trout and redfish, and they were always my favorites. So I guess, I don't know, kind of just something sticks with you. I guess fish that you target when you're younger just come to love them, I guess. Yeah. All right. So do you want to talk about your PhD work first, or do you want to talk about like some of the side projects that you did prior to that? It'd be tough to talk about all the side projects because there's a tech here and we, I work for a pretty big lab. So at any given time, there's 20 plus projects going on and I may get to go out, tag triple tail inshore one day, satellite tag Kobe the next day or be in the lab processing gut content or otoliths or, or something like that, or just processing or cleaning up data. But in terms of my own PhD work, so what we've kind of done in the state, you know, really wanted to figure out how many flounder were actually making a migration. So the southern flounder has uh, exhibits sexual dimorphism. So the males and females are very, very different. The males don't live very long. Um, they don't get very big, probably not even big enough to enter the fishery most of the time. And then the uh, females are much longer lived up to about nine years and they get pretty big and they spend most of their lives inshore in the estuaries and stuff. But then in the fall, late fall, they'll migrate offshore where the males live to go spawn. And it's been decently documented in the Atlantic, but not so much here in the Northern Gulf. And so we came up with a plan to acoustically tag these fish and set up the receivers in such a way that we could quantify how many flounder were actually participating in the spawn. And we're able to do that successfully. And on top of that, we're conducting our own aging growth and doing some reproductive analysis, so histology, fecundity, and coming up with a model that's going to be able to basically predict the age and maturity status of these fish that are actually coming out to migrate and what that would mean for the population. Um, so we'll be able to look at all the variation within the spawn and relate that back to a lot of abiotic factors like, um, you know, temperature, uh, river output, all those things, as well as population dynamic stuff. Okay, cool. I guess so. Yeah, going back to the acoustic tagging, uh, how is it acoustic tagging flounder? Like, where do you tag them at and how well is the tag retention? There's only uh, a couple people that have really done it. And the way that we're doing it is different than any of the published literature so far. We're basically doing surgery on the fish in a certain spot. There's not a lot of room in a flounder's gut cavity. You got to be really, really careful. But yeah, you, you do surgery, you insert the acoustic tag. We're using a Vemco V9 uh, coated to pain on high power every 90 to 120 seconds. And uh, that gives us about a full year's worth of tag life. We switched over from a V8 that we used in the first two years of the project, which is about a 200-day tag, which we got the out-migration on. But we started seeing some things. Uh, we saw some fish come back. But the really interesting thing that we started seeing is flounder that would leave each individual estuary would return to that same exact estuary six months later. So there's some sort of homing aspect with these fish, sort of akin to a salmon or something like that. And so we upgraded to the uh, full year tag this year to see if we can see some more of that, because that would be, you know, very, very important for looking at the variability and growth and some of the other reproductive stuff, even if there's localized spatial variation in some of that. Okay, cool. So I guess for those that maybe aren't, aren't familiar with acoustic tagging and how it all works, what is like the short and sweet summary of how acoustic tags function? So basically the acoustic tag puts off a 69 kilohertz ping that's unique to it. Each, each one has its own unique ID, but they don't really mean anything if you don't have any receivers. So in order to hear those tags, you have underwater receivers called hydrophones. And uh, if an acoustic tag is within range of one of those hydrophones, 
that hydrofoam will pick it up and log the information with date, time, location. And we're using something like 70 receivers to basically cover these tidal rivers where we're tagging most of the fish in the upper part of Mobile Bay and then gating the, the entire mouth and sides of the bay so that flounder essentially cannot leave the bay without being detected. Okay, cool. So did you have to go out there and install those receivers yourself or was that already like a network that was in place? The PhD student that was here before me was doing some acoustic work with speckled trout and redfish. So he had some of the rivers already kind of covered. But we still have to go out with divers and download those every six months and replace them. So we kind of modified, we kept most of the river arrays that he had designed and then modified the rest of them. We'll go out with divers as much as we can. We did switch over to a new pole mount method. We're actually drilling into any kind of pole, these angle iron mounts, and we mount the receiver to a fiberglass pole, and that seems to be working really well. And it cuts out having to, to do the diving stuff because that can logistically can be a little complicated sometimes when you've got a really busy lab. But then for the mouth of the bay, that was our big problem because there's no structure there to attach these receivers to. So we designed these uh, moorings with these subsurface buoys and we're using the acoustic release version of the receiver with the one that you can talk to and tell it to release at a certain time and those buoys will pull it to the surface so it's actually a really really cool design basically consists of a 120 pound mooring on the bottom some swivels and ropes going up at different points that hold the receiver and then two subsurface buoys okay gotcha that's pretty cool so i guess going back to the fish that you're collecting to, to be tagged, how are you collecting them for your project? So we're doing uh, hook and line collection. So we'll charter God. He's the same guy every year. He's one of the best in our area. And I've worked with him a lot before when he when we needed to get other fish for different projects. And um, so we basically leave every morning, go fish for 12 hours and tag what we, what we get at the end of the day. And it's been a journey for sure. It's tough <laughs> at times with flounder, especially being consistent. But We've, we've managed to get pretty good at it. In 2019, we tagged 63. 2020, we tagged 70. And then this past year, we tagged 300. Nice. So we had a really, really good year. And some of that is attributed to the population actually seeing a recovery based on some of the limit changes we've made and some of the conservation efforts that and this tagging program definitely has, has helped get the word out there and people are releasing more fish. Yeah. So... Cool. So did you choose hook and line to target potentially some of the bigger individuals? Like you said, like the females that are larger or was it just, yeah, what was like the driving force in choosing that as your collection method? Um, just because we kind of knew that, yeah, we could get a nice uh, range of fish and the sizes that we wanted that way. Could probably use a gill net in the fall when the fish run. But, you know, me personally, I'm not a huge fan of, of using gill nets for fish that you want to essentially grab, do surgery on and let go. True. Um, I yeah. feel like the hook and line was pretty, pretty easy. We've had very, very good survival rate. In fact, it's, it's been 100% the last two years. Every fish that we've tagged and released has moved around and, and, and done well. Many of them have been recaptured. So that was that was a big thing. And basically, I guess the first year of it was kind of a trial run and it, it was successful. So, and we've got, and with the hook and line method, we've gotten flounder up to 10 pounds, which is just a massive uh, southern flounder. So, and all the way, you know, as small as we needed for the project as well. Nice. Yeah, that sounds like a really awesome way to, to get the samples you need for, for your yeah, project. Yeah, it is a lot sure. of fun. Yeah. <laughs> the fall is my favorite time of year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Is there a lot of bycatch when you're targeting those out there? Well, we've gotten pretty good at it now, so we, we usually don't catch very much. But, yeah, you'll catch redfish and, and trout and stuff every now and then. 
especially if you're live bait and fishing for them. We, we kind of switched over to all artificial this past year, to, which helped cut that out a little bit. But we kind of know where all the flounder are now. We know where they're hanging out. We know what conditions they like. So we're able to target them pretty efficiently. Yeah. So comparing southern flounder to some of the other species that you just mentioned, how much do they move like in comparison to a redfish or a speckled trout, for example? That's a really good question. And, uh, you know, I hope to probably publish something like that at some point, because with redfish, it's hit or miss. Either they're going to stay in the same place for years at a time, like they'll get recaptured in the same place or they're going to move a long distance if they're not happy there. Trout, there's a definitely a seasonal movement pattern to them. They come down south, spring and spawn on these oyster beds. Then they kind of circle around the island and go into the deeper water in the summer and then head up back up into the rivers in the wintertime and kind of repeat the same cycle every year. Whereas with flounder, they kind of get up in these tidal rivers in the summer and in the fall, especially. And they'll kind of go upstream with the tide. In the summer, they'll kind of push up in there a lot more. But in the fall, they really only occupy the first thousand or so meters of the mouths of the rivers just feeding going up and down with the tide and then it's amazing though because they'll just do that every single day methodically and then one day they're like whatever the and that's what we're trying to evaluate basically is what that cue is they'll just up and go and move 30 40 miles in a matter mm -hmm. of days headed yeah. offshore and we've actually been able to, able to capture that and i think one of the ones moved you know 15 miles in one day which is just for a little flatfish is crazy to think about. <laughs> That's crazy. Huh. Yeah, it's interesting. Looking forward to seeing the results <laughs> that you publish here, hopefully. 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 We'll be able to get it out there soon. Cool. So you also said you're doing some research on their reproductive dynamic? Yep. So when we're not tagging fish, we're usually killing some. Anytime I can get my hands on them throughout the year, I'll, I'll keep some. And then we sample a bunch of different fishing tournaments. I know a ton of anglers in the area who will call me and say, hey, I got a bunch of flounder. And let me sample them and we'll get the otoliths. And then we're taking, if we can get to them within 24 hours, we'll take the ovaries out. And uh, you just take a little cross section, preserve it in formalin. And then we'll go back. We just got all the equipment to uh, be able to do the histology stuff ourselves. So you just fix it in paraffin and make a thin cut and you stain it. And you can look at what reproductive, you can assign a maturity status to it and all that and we'll come up with a length at 50 percent maturity curve length at 100 percent maturity and um, try to evaluate those parameters for our area and and look and see what how it compares to the other areas the state of mississippi right next door just did this back in 2019 uh someone named morgan corey published a nice paper on on southern flounder growth and reproduction it's pretty neat they do exhibit a lot of spatial and temporal variability in their growth and we're hoping that we'll probably see that too here and then if I can if I can pull it off, we're also going to try to do fecundity with the flounder, which has never really been done before on wild fish because you have to get them right when they're about to spawn pretty much yeah. in order to get an accurate estimate. And nobody really knows where these fish spawn. We know that they most likely are spawning in offshore waters, um, but we haven't been able to get our hands on them yet. We've got I got my hands on about five or six. But I'd like to get up to 30 or so. Yeah, well, maybe maybe next year or this year you'll you'll be able to get your hands on some more and figure that one out. Yeah, that cool. I'm gonna be able to figure it out at some point when I can focus my energy on it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You also manage an angler-based tagging program throughout the state of Alabama. So I was curious if you could kind of share what it's like managing a program like that. Pretty hectic. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, <laughs> 
the pro the program's grown a lot and there's a lot of different anglers who who need tags or they they need information on their fish that are being recaptured or they always need something. I can get emails every day or phone calls and then you get people who want to join the program. It's pretty crazy. It was started by the graduate student that was here before me and got together with the CCA and they came up with the money and got it started through most of the local guides actually were fundamental in getting this started. And a lot of them still, they're the top taggers in the program, but it's, it's grown a lot. I think we have 10,000 or more fish now out there that have tags in them and uh, a lot of fish are getting recaptured that's that's the thing now and so when people when a fish gets recaptured i'll go in find the initial tagging data put together a recapture report and send it to the angler and the the angler who recaptured it and the original angler who tagged it and then the angler who recaptured it gets a reward from the cca of a hat or t-shirt which we have these nice custom hats and t-shirts designed for the program and it's, it's been really successful and the thing that is excited me the most about it is we're seeing a lot of people releasing fish now or people wanting to get into the tagging program a lot of the tournaments now are live way in and they want to tag the fish before they release them and so it's just really really neat to see and um, you know when someone recaptures a fish with a tag in it they're they're really really likely to let it go as opposed to keeping that fish whereas if it doesn't have a tag in it and they're you know interested in keeping fish they're definitely going to keep it so yeah that's a good point how recent did they start doing live release tournaments down there? Is that something that happened just recently? We have this one really, really big tournament, um, the Alabama Deep Sea Fishing Rodeo, which is the largest fishing rodeo in the country. And they started doing it, I don't, I'm not sure the exact dates, probably five or six years ago. It's really become popular, though, in the last couple of years. Almost every single tournament is live weigh-in for trout and redfish, and they're wanting to all release their fish. They, they, you know, they offer a bonus, like, quarter of a pound or whatever if you weigh your bag in live and so that incentivizes oh. the anglers to do that or they'll have you know separate live weigh-in categories not so much for flounder <laughs> people want to keep their flounder <laughs> there is a couple tournaments that uh there's a spawning program with the hatchery now and they'll offer rewards and stuff for live weigh-in but but yeah it's, it's really neat to see and and how the community has responded to conservation here in alabama has been has been really really cool to see it's a big deal to a lot of people, especially the guides. I mean, most guides are, aren't keeping very many fish anymore, only, you know, what they need or for certain customers. Uh, but a lot of customers, too, are wanting to, to hop on these tagging trips because then, you know, when these fish get recaptured, they get to know about it. So it's like you're not just throwing fish back never to hear from it again. You may you may end up getting fish from it. And it's really, really cool to see what these fish do. It excites people. Yeah, that's awesome. Getting to engage people in the science a little bit. You know, there's more more to it, I guess, than just going out there and catching fish. And it sounds like a lot like a program that I actually participate in up here in Virginia. It's kind of the same thing. You know, I've been doing that since like 2013. And, you know, it's cool, like getting the little rewards and getting to see where the fish go and everything else. So have you found any like interesting findings in any of the angler based tagging data so far? Like any anything that stands out? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, one of the funny questions that we we ask all the time is like, are dumb fish dumb? Like are the fish that get captured more likely to get recaptured again? Because they're kind of, <laughs> you know, yeah. dumb. And we see that a lot, you know, with some of these fish. And then we also see whereas a lot of the bigger fish that get captured, like if you catch a really, really big trout, like a trophy trout, you tag and let it go. It's It's not very likely to get recaptured. And then definitely the movement patterns that we've seen, especially with red drum, really, really liking certain areas and not moving very much. 
the previous student that worked on the acoustic stuff with them kind of had some concerns at first because he was detecting red drum consistently on the same receiver and it wasn't moving. So he's like, oh, that fish is dead. But turns out a year later, that fish was recapped in the same exact spot. It never moved more than 100 yards during that time. And some redfish will do that. Whereas you have these other ones that'll swim all the way to Florida from here, get recaptured over in Florida. And so that's really, really interesting. And especially seeing the trout do what they do is neat. Um, and every now and then some one does something crazy and goes like all the way to Mississippi or something like that. So Yeah, that's pretty cool. Seems like I, I've pretty much encountered the same thing. All the big trout and reds that we've tagged over the last almost 10 years have never gotten recaptured. It's always been the smaller fish yeah. for whatever reason. Yeah. Yeah. Same for the flounder that we've tagged. But the interesting thing with them is they're growing insanely fast, even faster than I was expecting. I mean, it's 12 inch fish last fall this spring could be anywhere from 18 to 19 inches already wow if it's if it's still in its first year of life and another thing i've noticed with like red drum is the ones that don't move a lot and they're staying in the same area tend to grow a lot faster than fish that are moving a lot which makes sense burning a lot of calories yeah obviously they're moving because they're not happy with you know food or habitat or whatever how old do you think that 10-pound flounder that you captured for your project was? You know, that that fish is going to haunt me for a long time. I wish I knew the answer to that. It would uh, it would definitely anchor my growth curve. And, you know, it didn't really do anything crazy on the acoustic data. It left the river, you know, at a certain time, but then didn't, didn't leave the bay to go spawn, which is another thing we've seen is only about 30% each year of the flounder that we're tagging are, are leaving to go offshore. And we're tagging all big fish that are mature so that, that was something very very interesting that we found but um i would say if i had to guess probably five or six years old okay and i still had a lot of room to grow it was only 25 inches but it was like just ridiculously wide and thick you know they can get up to about 30 inches if she ever makes it there she's probably be a new state record for sure that's crazy i wonder how the growth rates from flounder down there compare to like other parts on along the east coast or up here virginia yeah, we're going to try to look at that and see if there's a, I think that there is variability in growth based on different areas, you know, spatially, but what, what the cutoff is, I don't know. I know within their stock on the Atlantic, they tend to grow some bigger flounder, like the Carolinas there. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's definitely something. I mean, most of the published literature doesn't usually report fish over four years old. And if they do, it's only a few of them. So fishing pressure is very, very high on them. Yeah. It keeps them down. Yeah, so you mentioned there were some new regulations that were put in place to help the population down there. How does that seem to be going, or what prompted that decision? So that was that was done the year we started this project based on some projections that my advisor, Dr. Power, made. They made some theoretical projections to try to meet the target SPR of about 30% spawning potential ratio. And they settled on 14 inches, and then they reduced the bag limit to 5 per person from 10. Previously, the limit was 12 inches which is actually going to be below your L50 or your length at 50% maturity, which is not very, not really what you want, but could be okay in a really fast growing fish if the population is stable, but it wasn't. So they decided to make the move. And additionally, they closed the season during November, which has also made a really, really big impact because previously the fall flounder run was a big deal. People would kill a lot of fish that were, were moving out because these fish are super aggressive when they're, when they're moving out, they're feeding really heavily 
trying to stack as much calories as they can to get ready to spawn. But um, they also did the uh, limit change at the same time with spotted sea trout. And I think they moved it up to 15 inches and decreased the bag limit for them as well. And it's helped both species for sure. And anglers seem to be happy with that as well because they've, they've seen the results of it and they're catching much more quality fish now. Yeah. Nice. That's cool to see that something like that working. And you're kind of already seems like you're starting to see results, at least with some of the collection you've been doing. Yeah. I mean, the state's been very happy with that because they, they feel like they made the right decision. And I definitely think that they did make the right decision. And we're hopefully going to see another increase next year, or something similar to what we saw this year. Yeah. So how is climate change potentially affecting southern flounder in Alabama? So southern flounder are unique for two reasons. They, they exhibit sexual dimorphism, which we talked about a little bit, how the males and females are, are both different. But then some work that Lukenbach and Honeycutt published basically shows that they exhibit environmental sex determination too. So where when they're about 75 to 100 millimeters, um, the environment around them will determine what sex they will be. But only the females exhibit this characteristic. So imagine about 50% of the progeny is going to be male. It's going to stay male. The other 50%, which are genetically female, based on the water temperature around them, whether it's too hot or too cold, could be masculinized up to 96%. So you could have an entire spawn basically be male if the conditions are not right. And who knows why they do this? It could be some protective thing that the species does because when conditions aren't favorable, maybe the males have more success offshore. But essentially, it's, it's hard to make a female southern flounder, especially if conditions aren't correct. And we've seen this in, in fisheries management for the species where they, a lot of states have changed their management practices and really focused on conserving the species, but haven't seen any change in the population or any, any increase, any positive increase. And so that's kind of what, what has driven some of these groups to look elsewhere and see that maybe there's some environmental factors that are, that are playing a role with Southern flounder. And so that's something we're very, very interested in. And a really, really cool paper is Honeycutt 2019 paper. Um, where they basically took what the what these mesocosm experiments found and they went out and sampled in North Carolina, put out a bunch of temperature loggers and went and collected a bunch of baby southern flounder and used a PCR method to determine sex and found that the wild ratios were pretty much spot on with with the what the experiments thought they would be for those certain temperature ranges. Gotcha. So potentially warming climates could heavily skew those sex ratios. Right. And basically, in theory, if you if you have that scenario, it could give the illusion that the fishery is collapsing because you end up with a scenario where recruitment to the population could be high. But if they're all males, the subsequent recruitment to the fishery is going to be low, if any at all, because the males aren't going to get to the size that the fishery would allow you to keep. And after their first year of life, they're going to migrate offshore where people don't aren't going to catch them or even see them. Yeah. Wow, actually, I didn't know that about southern flounder. That's really interesting. Sounds like a really important question to have an answer to. What do you think could be a potential solution at some point further down the road? That's a great question. Uh, I'd have to probably think about the solution a lot more. But really, I think what's important now is is documenting this for each area, because I think my work is going to hopefully show that there's a lot of variation in a lot of these parameters that the population exhibits. And I think that essentially localized studies like the one that they did in the Carolinas should be conducted to see, you know, initially what your sex ratios are for your area and and what that means and whether or not we need to really focus on some hatchery programs. Because right now we have a hatchery here in Alabama, but they, you know, 
weren't real and 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 in other places too probably aren't super conscious about this or sometimes you don't really have a choice of when you have to release your fish and if the conditions call for it and so we need to if we are doing hatchery programs like that make sure that we're putting these fish into areas that have these favorable temperature conditions and temperature ranges so that we can maximize the female output from these yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, it's really interesting. I I hadn't really ever thought about that. It's crazy. How I I mean, it's something like you think about when you think about like sea turtle eggs, you know, and the temperature of the sand determining sex that way. But I didn't know that was the case for flounder. That's really cool. Exactly. Yeah, and I didn't either until I really started diving into it. And it's a pretty recent study. I mean, the first one I think was published in the early 2000s or in 2013, maybe. Yeah, it's still it's still not mainstream news yet. Yeah, I'd be very curious to see how it varies geographically. Right. I'm very, very interested in that too. So you also, I saw that you have a side project going on for uh, flatfish up in Alaska. I was curious to learn some more about that. Yeah, that's a that's a really fun project. It kind of builds off of some work that my advisor did in the early 2000s up there where they went and pulled these otter trawls through these remote locations along the the copper river delta and they found these basically flatfish nursery habitats over there and uh they never really did anything with the data they just kind of you know noted it and they made they published it and some other works didn't really focus on it but then you know we had this big pacific marine heat wave up there that kind of decimated a lot of birds and different other fish and so we went back up there and we're work. i'm working with the prince william sound science center and uh, we get all our permits and everything every year. We hire a captain and we go out there and we basically have seven sites and we do three replicate trawls at each site. And we're basically just evaluating the community composition, doing a bunch of CTD casts, and then we'll run some community analysis at the end of it. And I already did that on the first year's data. And basically you can definitely see that there's a big, big change in the community composition from the early 2000s to now but I haven't ran it in relation to any of the metadata or anything yet. So we don't know what the cause is yet of that, but uh, we will eventually. And that's a fun project because there's so many different flatfish up there. It's like 40 or 50% of the species comp is, is flatfish. You have like English soles and Pacific halibut, all these other different stuff. And it's, it's really neat. Yeah, that's awesome. I, Alaska is a really, really cool place to do research, I'm sure. Yeah, I'd love to to get up there for my postdoc. Yeah, that's uh, I've been vac- vacationing there almost every other year since I was a kid. So, what would you want to study uh, if you could for a postdoc up in Alaska? Halibut for sure, if I could, or some you know some salmon stuff. The salmon are not doing very well either. The king, the king salmon specifically, but yeah, I mean it'd be neat to to apply what I'm doing here with the southern flounder to you know, combining the population dynamic data with the, with the migration and spawning data to see what, how that would work for halibut up there. And the Science Center has, this, you know, 100 plus acoustic receivers. And Dr. Marianne Bishop, who I'm collaborating with on the project, has an acoustic project already for herring and is interested in doing some flatfish stuff. So it could all work out if, if I can get through this PhD first. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, good luck to you. That sounds like, a, like an awesome goal. So I'm curious what advice you would give to undergraduate students that are considering transitioning into fisheries like you were at one point, it seems. Like, what what advice would you have for them about transitioning from another field into the field of fishery science? 
I would definitely say my recommendation would be to try to get a job working for a lab before you consider doing graduate school. Get your feet wet, get in there and really find what you have a passion for. If you have a passion for it, um, you'll find out pretty quickly because it's, it's pretty labor intensive no matter what you're doing in this field. You know that I'm sure we're always busy. We're always working. And then when you find out what you want to do and what you're passionate about, you can really, really focus on it and pursue it. And that was a big thing for me when I was kind of torn between doing this or doing that. Wasn't really sure. I wasn't really my best at either of them until I decided to pick one and really focus on it. And when you start focusing on that one thing that you really want and what you really want to be good at is, uh, is when you'll start seeing a lot of success. So that would be my advice. Really try to narrow down what you're interested in and really focus on it and, uh, pursue it with everything you got yeah yeah absolutely that's great advice all right so now we'll go ahead and transfer over to the final five questions that we ask each of the guests that come on the show so the first one this might be an obvious one but what is your favorite fish definitely the flounder anything flat though (laughs) anything flat (laughs) uh, i don't know i do i do i get an itch to go speckled trout fishing a lot too that's that's really you know day in and day out one of my favorite things to go fish for throw artificial lures for trout but um i enjoy getting offshore too every now and then seeing the the tunas and the sailfishes and the wahoos and all that but definitely my favorite one's got to be the flounder yeah (laughs) that's what i expected you know at the end of the day you're coming back to the flounder so second question what is your favorite memory from your career so far? For me, it would have to be the success that we had this year, tagging 300 flounder in 20 trips. That was an incredible sight to see. And we saw this mass congregation of flounder that showed up around our little island here. And I'd never seen anything like it. So that was really, really cool. It was kind of like a culmination of all the hard work we'd put in and to see, to see in a, a recovery like that. The other thing would probably be satellite tagging cobia. That that's pretty neat. See a big satellite tag going to fish and be able to track it almost in real time. Nice. Yeah, going from seventy fish to three hundred has gotta be <laughs> crazy. Yeah, it was wild. We'd kind of seen a lot of smaller fish the year before and I had a, a thought in mind that it was probably gonna be a pretty good year, but I had no idea it was gonna be like that. And it was like that from day one. It was just fish everywhere. Yeah. So Question three, what is your dream job and where would it be? My dream job would probably be actually working in Alaska. At least that's my current dream, to work in Alaska with halibut and kind of help help their population as much as I can up there would be would be my dream right now. Yeah, awesome. It sounds like a, a pretty solid job <laughs> and a really cool location too. Yeah. All right, so last question. If there was one point or principle that you could have programmed into each of our listeners' heads, what would it be? I would say conservation and sustainability. I mean, a lot of these resources are renewable, and we kind of think that the ocean is plentiful and there's plenty of fish in the sea, but it's our job as, as researchers and as, as the people harvesting this resource to take care of it so that so that we can have a future and our kids and our kids' kids can, can enjoy the same things that we grew up doing and to, to not take advantage of it, to take what you need and take what, you, what you're what you going to use, but to, to protect the rest and, and really preach that to other people. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good one. If our listeners would like to get in contact with you, what's going to be the best way to do that? 
probably the best way is to reach me by email, which is D-K-I-E-N-E at D-I-S-L dot O-R-G. Or you can find me on Instagram. I think my handle is dkeen27 or Facebook, Dylan Keen. Um, I'm usually holding up a fish in all my pictures, so <laughs> it's not too hard. Not too hard to find me. I don't I don't think there's very many Keens in the world either. Yeah. <laughs> Any of your listeners that are undergraduate students or potential college students that want to reach out, we've got a brand new uh, School of Marine and Environmental Science at the university and undergraduate program. Plus, we have have graduate programs, all different types of labs, anything from ecotox to biological oceanography, physical oceanography, so fisheries for sure. But um, I'm always happy to to put people in touch with other people if I know that they can help them out. So great, yeah, sounds good. Um, I'll be sure to link all that information down in the in the show description, so you guys can check that out. So yeah, thanks thanks for coming on the podcast, Dylan. It was really cool hearing about all your your flounder stuff and everything else. It's fantastic. I appreciate it, man. I'm happy that there's fisheries podcasts out there, and this is uh, becoming a thing. And we have a, a fishing podcast here in Alabama. It's like a fishing report, essentially, yeah. but they have researchers on every now and then. But it's mainly about fishing. So it's cool that you got a science podcast going. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're hoping to see it grow and always interested in talking to anybody that's willing or wants to come on the show and volunteer. You can always send us an email or shoot me an email personally and happy to, to set that up. So if you would like to get a hold of us at the Fisheries Podcast, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at Fisheries Pod or by email at feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by purchasing Fisheries Podcast logo merch available on Teespring. I'm Zach Crum, and thank you for listening to the 160th episode of the Fisheries Podcast. And remember to take care of the resources that we have available so they can be enjoyed by future generations to come.